If you're visiting this morning, my name is John Sarver. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in Galatians. We're coming to the close of Galatians. We have two more sermons left. Lord willing, this one in the ne- next week. If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to go ahead and turn there. Galatians chapter 6. A few weeks ago, I had mentioned that we had moved into a new house. You know, we're doing the trendy thing, decorating with plants. By way of update, the plants are doing well. The monstera's leaves have fully opened. The new leaves, the pathos continues to grow. The baby snake plant is about teenage Groot size. Now, what I didn't tell you is that our newly acquired green thumbs, they also extend to the outside. Now, gardening would be too strong of a word to use. That would be a goal. But we do have a number of potted plants, herbs like basil, and then my favorite, we have a lot of chili plants, jalapenos, Thai peppers, ghost peppers. We've been able to eat uh, a number of jalapenos. One of us has been able to eat ghost peppers. I'll let you guess who, (laughs) the Mexican or the Brit. Now, here's what's cool. Most of these peppers that we have are actually gifts from my mom. She grows a ton of peppers, like with the Skips houses to indoor plants. She is to chili peppers. And every year at the end of, I guess, harvesting pepper season, she saves the peppers, she drives them out, she keeps the seeds, and that's how she plants to get new peppers. And it's those seeds, actually, by which we've come into um, the plants that we have. Now, I mentioned this several weeks ago when we were considering the fruit of the Spirit. But life begets life after its likeness. Healthy, living things produce life. They at least have the ability to produce life. This is true for plants, as we saw. It's true for the Holy Spirit. The church has confessed that the Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. He takes up residence inside of us, giving us life, and then conforming our lives to the image of Christ. That is the fruit of the Spirit. We see life producing life after its likeness. So our focus in that sense was on the Spirit, the source of life, and then the quality of life that He produces. Paul picks up the agricultural theme again today, but he does so from a different angle, not focusing on the plant per se, but on the farmer and the act of farming. And he takes this basic agricultural principle, you reap what you sow, and he applies it to our spiritual lives. You see, if you sow ghost pepper seeds, you will reap ghost pepper plants. If you sow jalapeno seeds, you reap jalapenos. You sow Thai peppers, you reap Thai pepper plants. You don't sow one seed and expect a different plant. In fact, you'd be foolish if you planted a jalapeno seed and you expected an apple tree. We realize it instinctively. It's axiomatic. It's basic to life. The seed you plant is the plant you produce. This is also how our spiritual lives work. You can't sow sin and expect to reap sanctification here and salvation later. Rather, it's sown to the Spirit here that reaps sanctification now and eternal life later. You will reap what you sow. That is our big idea this morning. You will reap what you sow. That is what you sow now. You will reap now, here, and in eternity. And in fact, what you reap now is a foretaste of what you will reap forever. Keep that in mind as we hear the text, Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. 
Let the one who is taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the spirit will reap eternal life from the spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good. For we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Amen. You can be seated. Verses 6 through 10 bring Paul's application section, which began in chapter 4 to a close. Now, I'll say this maybe the last time or second to last time. Paul's main purpose in writing to the churches in Galatia was to confront them over a false gospel that they either had come to believe or were coming to believe. So the heart of his concern is what we call the doctrine of justification. Stated as a question, it asks, how can I, a sinner, one who has broken God's holy and just law, how can I be made right with him? On the one hand, how can my sins be forgiven? And on the other, how can I be made righteous? How can I be reconciled to him? To this question, the gospel says, simply by trusting in Jesus, by resting in him by clinging to him by faith. You see, by faith, all that is Christ's becomes ours. Right, his wrath-bearing death upon the cross, his perfectly obedient life, his relationship with the Father as we are adopted, his spirit as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, his kingdom as we are made co-heirs. All that is Christ becomes ours. It happens as we cling to him by faith. Now the Galatians they're flirting with the idea that they need to add their works to faith, that they need to add merit to grace, really that they need to add Moses to Christ. And so Paul has written with precision and clarity to demonstrate that the gospel is a gift. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law. Paul gives us his thesis in chapter 2, verse 16. I'll read this again probably for the last time for us Paul writes there because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus this is so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no human being will be justified Paul from another number of different angles has been laboring to demonstrate salvation is a gift And then he turns to application of the gospel. It's really an unfolding of the implications of the gospel. But what's subtle, and I think will become more clear today, is that just because salvation is a gift, it doesn't mean our actions don't matter. They do. It will become clear that we will reap what we sow, both here and in eternity. So three points of application from the text this morning. Because you will reap what you sow, one, support your pastors, Two, sow to the Spirit. Three, serve this family. If you're visiting, you would think about it as serve your family, your local church, but because you will reap what you sow, one, support your pastors. Sow to the Spirit. Serve this family. Because you will reap what you sow, now and in eternity, support your pastors. So first, verse six, look at the text. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Hope you brought your checkbooks. 
<laughs> I'm just kidding. Make jokes when I'm nervous. <laughs> now, I will say, <laughs> you know, the beauty of expositional preaching, where we preach through books of the Bible, is that the goal is to present the whole counsel of God to the people. As a pastor, there are things that I preach that in my flesh I don't want to preach. There are things that all of us in our flesh we hear that we don't want to hear. And so here we have, let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Now, at first blush, it seems like a random verse. Some commentators say it's just a one-off kind of exhortation. I think there's a couple reasons, um, perhaps why it's here. If you remember or recall in the, in the preceding verses, Paul tells the congregation to bear one another's burdens. Paul, I think in this sense, is telling the body to bear the material burdens of their pastor. This is a concrete example of what that looks like. And then, so I think that's part of it. I think we should especially, especially seek to understand verse 6 in light of verses 7 and 8. You might look down at 7 and 8. Again, you'll see that what a person sows is what they reap. Sowing to the flesh will reap destruction. Sowing to the spirit will reap eternal life. Right? What we're reaping now is a foretaste of what we will reap forever. We'll untangle that more in our second point. But the point to understand here is that if you're sowing to the flesh, you will reap the things of the flesh, which will lead to destruction. Sowing to the Spirit will bring forth sanctification now and the fullness of life later. There is a relationship between saving faith, the fruit the Spirit brings now, and eternal life later. Just as there is a relationship between unbelief, the works of the flesh, and eternal destruction. Two different paths, two different seeds, two different types of fruit, two different outcomes. The pastor, as we will see, is committed to helping you sow the right kinds of seeds towards eternal life. So our actions said differently, holiness matters. Holiness today precedes holiness later. The author of Hebrew writes, pursue peace with everyone. This is Hebrews chapter 12. Pursue, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. You see, a good pastor is committed to the increase of your holiness, without which you will not see the Lord. He's committed to your walk with the Spirit, committed to the production of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. As a fellow farmer, he is helping you sow seed. He does so as he preaches. As a good pastor ought to be committed to leading you to greener pastures. We could say that a good pastor's job is to help you get to heaven. And notice, verse 6, he does this how? He does so by teaching the word of God. Look at his job description. We know that it's orient oriented around the word of God. Because it's the reason he's getting paid. It's the reason you share all good things with the pastor. It's because he's a preacher in the pulpit. Right among the people, he's a discipler. He's a counselor with the hurting. All of this is centered around God's word. The pastor's job before anything is to study, to understand, to explain, and to apply God's word to the people. He does so to them under the various circumstances that they might sow and reap eternal life. The pastor's job first is a preacher. You might be familiar with the name Mark Dever. He is a pastor in Washington, D.C. When he interviewed for the pastorate at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, that's where he's at now. I think he interviewed there probably in like 94, 95. 
He told the congregation, I will let everything else go before I let the preaching fall. Now, he wasn't saying the pastor's only job is to preach, but he wanted them to know that the pastor is a preacher first because everything else rises and falls on the preaching. Like if they wanted programs or marketing or gimmicks, he was not the guy. The first thing he was going to do, the most important thing he was going to do was to preach. This is because, as the reformers have noted, the church is a creature of the word, meaning the people of God come to life through the preaching of the word. They are sustained in life by the preaching of the word, and they are guided towards eternal life through preaching. The modern pastor has become many things, a manager, an inspirational speaker, a politician, a social worker, a comedian, a salesman. Those are fine careers, but they are not the calling of a pastor. He is a preacher of God's word, a herald of the good news of God, one who proclaims the incalculable riches of Christ. His job is to unfold the mystery of the gospel that the people might marvel at Jesus. And as Paul is saying, the pastor should be paid for it. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And again, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Paul writes there, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor. That would be in the one hand like reverence. Paul in 1 Thess 5 describes it as a love because of the work that they do. And then pay. He says, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. And here quoting Christ, Paul writes, the worker is worthy of his wages. You see, the pastor, the preaching pastor in particular, should be paid for the work that he does. Now, there are a couple of different errors that you can make. So, of course, you could pay your, pay your pastor well. There are a couple of errors that you can make. On the one hand, you can overpay a pastor. On the other hand, you could underpay a pastor. Luther notes in his commentary on Galatians that Satan would love for us to do either of these because his aim is to snuff out the gospel. In overpaying a pastor, you can potentially tempt him toward greed and pomp. You know, if your pastor is making regular appearances on TBN, this might be him. If he is campaigning for a jet, that is a red flag. I would think the most more common mistake would be to underpay your pastor. Many people seem to think that pastors have taken a vow of poverty by entering into the ministry. The point here is that the worker is worthy of their wages. You want your pastor to be paid well so that, as one denomination puts it, he can be free from worldly care. Like, you don't want your pastor Ubering on Saturday so that he can provide for his family when he should be hard at work studying, praying, counseling, teaching, preaching. Now, there are certainly sometimes, I would say rare cases, especially in the U.S., a country that's wealthy, there are exceptional times where it's necessary for a man to be bivocational. So he's a pastor and he works as well during his season. We should commend those brothers for their hard work, for their commitment to the calling, but the model is not desirable. As the apostles say in Acts chapter 6, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. You see, the church has grown for 2,000 years because saints have generously set aside a man or men to study the word of God and to preach it. 
The pastor is worthy of his wage. Paul assumes that it requires time, so he's worthy of it in that sense, but also because of the value he brings to the life of the people. And this is where the connection to 7 and 8 becomes clearer. You see, the New Testament assumes there's a relationship between the preaching that you hear and the life that you will live, both here and in eternity. Some of the most important sowing and reaping you will do in your life happen when you listen and apply sermons, be them good sermons or bad ones. Writing to a young Timothy pastoring in Ephesus, Paul says this, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, you were saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. Part of the means by which God is saving you and will save you is through the preaching of your pastor. Consider the weight of your pastor's calling. Consider how significant it is who you choose to sit under. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. There is a sense in which you are being saved and will be saved by your pastor's preaching. Now, I don't mean to say your pastor becomes your Messiah. I'm not Jesus. Josh isn't Jesus. Most we have in common, our name starts with J. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone in the real Jesus of the Bible. The problem, to quote Schreiner once again, the most dangerous teachers are the ones who preach different Christ but still call him Jesus. Friends, that happens in pulpits. Consider what happened to the churches in Galatia. You will be saved as you persevere in faith, clinging to the real Jesus of the Bible. The problem is that pulpits are filled with counterfeits. A good pastor, on the other hand, is committed to opening up the Word of God to explain its realities concerning the Word of God, that your faith might be a persevering attachment to the real Jesus of the Bible. A good pastor is committed to helping you sow good seeds that you might reap some of the benefits now and the fullness of those benefits later. A good pastor understands the weight of his calling. He preaches with fear and trembling to his people before God because he knows God will judge him and them. A good preacher, as we will see next week, he preaches Christ crucified. Nothing more, nothing less. I don't doubt that many, if not most of you, will leave NBC at some point. You know, that grieves me as a pastor. But you'll move cities for school, for residency, for work, for retirement, for change. You'll move across town. You'll end up somewhere else for whatever reason. What I would say to you today is consider how important it is that the pastor preaches the word of God. Right? Not anecdotes, not inspirational stories, not an echo of the world, but delivers to you the very words of God. You should pick a pastor in a church like your soul depends upon it because it does. Sit under someone who will give your soul the food it needs and not the crap your flesh desires. And when you're there, give generously. Notice Paul says to share all your good things with the pastor. Pay him well enough that he can give himself fully without distraction to the work of the ministry. 
Calvin puts it this way. Therefore, so far as their needs demand, let believers regard all their property as at the disposal of godly and holy teachers. What return will they make for their inestimable treasure of eternal life, which they receive by their preaching? Brothers and sisters, with what can you compare to the treasure of eternal life? Here is the reality. How we spend our money reveals what we care for, care about. It demonstrates what we think is really important, what we think is worthy. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, we are willing to work and to save and to find money and to spend it on the things that matter to us. If you value your physical health, you might pay extra to eat all organic. You might pay more than the ordinary gym to be somewhere like Orange Theory or CrossFit. If you value education, you might take on more debt to go to a nicer school. You might pay for a tutor. If you value luxury, you might pay for a nicer car. If you value TV, you might pay for Netflix and Hulu. If you're young, you'll make sure your parents do. Someone said, that's good. (laughs) That's true. Be it shoes or vacation or food, we will find money and spend it on the things that we value. Brothers and sisters, do you value your souls? Does your giving to your local church reveal that? Are you sharing all good things with your pastor? Now notice, maybe the last thing on this, notice it's a reciprocal relationship. It's not transactional. The pastor's not charging a fee to hear the gospel, to receive the table. It's not there today, (laughs) normally. Rather, he's preaching freely. The congregation, in turn, as he is sharing the treasures of Christ, they are, in turn, sharing their goods with him. So I would encourage you to support your pastors. It's important because what you sow here, you will reap here and in eternity. We come now to our second point, so to the Spirit. Coming to the heart of the text, so to the Spirit, because you will reap what you sow, both here and in eternity. Verse 7, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. So after four chapters of you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, you might be tempted to think your actions don't matter. Paul says, don't get it twisted. Don't be self-deceived. The seed you sow is a plant you will grow. As we'll see it in verse 8, if you sow to sin, you'll reap destruction. If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap life. Don't be deceived. You see, there is a degree of self-deception that happens every time we sin. It's because we think we're getting away with something. We think, I can make a quick glance at her. It's not going to impact me, my heart, my marriage. I can fudge a little on my taxes, right? It's not going to impact me, my heart. I can drink a little bit too much tonight. It won't impact my ability to think clearly. It won't be corrosive on my life. I can lash out at my children. It won't impact our family. I can steal from my roommate. It won't impact our relationship. I can gossip about my coworkers, slander my brothers and sisters. When we sin, we think we're getting away with something. We think we can make a fool out of God. We're self-deceived because we're acting as though our sins won't have consequences. But look at the text. God 
is not mocked. Like you might be able to fool your employer, you might be able to fool your roommate, you might be able to fool your boss or your spouse or the IRS, but you will not fool God. He is the one against whom you are sinning against. Paul says, whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. Now, you'll recall that the flesh is, it's that old part of us, right, that doesn't desire or do the things of God. It belongs to this present evil age. It stands in opposition to the Spirit. So sowing to the flesh is gratifying the desires of the flesh. It would be to uh, carry out the works of the flesh, which we saw in chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. So every time, every single time we sow to the flesh, right, giving into sexual immorality or drunkenness or wrath, we lack self-control, we sin in our anger, every time we do so, it has destructive consequences. Here, in a lifestyle of that that's unrepentant will have destructive consequences forever. Whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Now, I think as we're looking at this reaping, both um, sowing to the flesh and to the spirit, we should think about it first um, eschatologically. That is with, with regard to our eternal state. Even as it has consequences now. Now, I say this for a couple reasons. If you look at verse 8, you'll notice destruction is contrasted to eternal life. So to the flesh, you reap destruction. So to the spirit, you reap eternal life. We're talking about the outcome of final judgment. And then secondly, because of a phrase that Paul uses there in verse 7 when he says, do not be deceived. He uses the same phrase, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. And consider how similar this is to the works of the flesh. Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now you might just glance back at the works of the flesh, beginning there in verse 19. He says that they're obvious. He lists them, very similar to what we just heard. And then at the bottom he says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's telling us, do not be deceived. If you are practicing the works of the flesh, if your life is a consistent sowing to the flesh without repentance, there's no increase in holiness, you should not expect to reap eternal life. Rather, you will reap destruction. And then on the flip side, verse 8, the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. If the basic tenor of your life is sowing to the Spirit, which I think we should understand as, again, chapter 5 of Galatians, walking with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. We're talking about being alive by the Spirit, being indwelt by the Spirit, uh, producing the fruit of the Spirit as you are using the ordinary means of grace. If that is you, you can expect to reap eternal life later. You will reap what you sow. Now, you might be thinking, it sounds like you're saying we're saved by faith and works. Okay, like John, you spent four chapters explaining we cannot be justified by works. It's faith alone. If we add even a little bit of law to the gospel, the whole thing becomes law and it's ruined. Like you've been telling us, we're forgiven, we're declared righteous simply by faith as we cling to Jesus with empty hands. We don't go to him with works. We cling to him by faith. 
And not just from the beginning. We don't seek to finish by the flesh what was begun by faith. I can assure you, Paul has not changed his mind in the last 10 verses of Galatians. Neither have I. Salvation is a gift of God from beginning to end. It is grasped by faith from beginning to end. We are saved by faith apart from works, but this doesn't mean that there isn't a relationship between faith and works. And this sowing and reaping imagery is really helpful for helping us understand. Paul has been contrasting two different ages. There's the present evil age. It's typified by the works of the flesh. Its outcome is destruction. And then there is new creation, which is broken in now. We as Christians, as we believe in Christ, we are part of new creation. But the old creation is tainted by sin and the curse. Its outcome is destruction. In the new creation, we are now experiencing the fruit of it. And it's what? It's our love, our joy, our peace and patience, kindness, goodness. It's our self-control, our holiness, our righteousness, our incorruptibility. And so if you're in Christ, you're part of new creation. Yes, we await the fullness of new creation later, but even now we're beginning to experience its fruit as we're sowing towards it. Okay? There's a sense in which we're walking two very different paths, sowing two very different seeds that yield a different outcome. One commentator, Phil Graham Ryken, he illustrated it really well. So I'm just going to steal it, but I'll, you know, modify it a little. Now imagine you have a blueberry farm. You've worked hard in sowing the blueberries. Harvest season has come. You go out with your, like, blueberry bucket. I don't know. And you're reaping the blueberries. You're taking these in. You do a number of things with them. You might sell some. You're going to jam some. But maybe your favorite thing is, is pie. Like you're thinking about, you're going to have pie. The fullness of the harvesting won't come until you hear the oven ding. You smell the pie, it's in your bowl, it's covered with ice cream, and you're eating it. But even as you're out there harvesting the blueberries, every now and again you throw one in your mouth. And it's like you're getting a foretaste. It's not the fullness of harvest yet, but you're getting a, full, you're getting a foretaste of what is to come. This is what's happening here. We are beginning to reap the reality that we are in new creation as we are getting a foretaste in each other's love and joy and peace. The Holy Spirit is allowing us to taste toward what we are walking. So we're not earning it. We are, it's a basic principle of life. We are sowing as we walk there. We are reaping it. We are getting a foretaste. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter six. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. So what fruit was produced from then, the things you are now ashamed of. The outcome of those things is death. But now since you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification, and the outcome of it is eternal life. Okay, we used to produce fruit that leads to death. Now, as a Christian, not saying we don't sin, We experience that in a decreasing measure, but now we are producing fruit that leads to sanctification. Its outcome is eternal life. We see that sanctification is on the way to glory. It can't not happen. I love the text that we read, Matthew chapter 25. You could even flip to it in your service guides if you want. The Son of Man comes in his glory. The nations are gathered before him. He separates um, the sheep from the goats. He says to the righteous, 
Come you who are blessed, take my inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothing, you clothed me. I was sick, I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And then on the flip side, he's going to pronounce condemnation based on visible signs to the goats. Again, the righteous are being saved by faith, but Jesus is able to give out, to grant inheritance and destruction based on visible signs. And here's what I think is remarkable is notice the response of the righteous. They were surprised. It's not like they had been keeping a list of the things that they thought they had to do to get into heaven. They understand that they are saved by grace and it comes to bear in their life as they are producing the fruit of sanctification that leads to eternal life. So to be clear, we are not saved by our works, but our works are an inevitable They're an inevitable outcome. In this sense, they're necessary, a necessary part of our salvation. It is God in us producing fruit in us after his likeness. One commentator put it well when he said that no one is saved by works, but no one will be saved without works. Meaning, no one is saved by works, but no one who will be saved will be without works. Brothers and sisters, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Right? You can fool people here about being a Christian. You might even be able to do it for a long time. You will not be able to fool God. NBC, I wonder what kind of fruit are you picking and experiencing now? What does it tell you about the type of seeds you've been sowing? Are you experiencing the slow corruption that leads to destruction or the increase of holiness, sanctification that leads to eternal life? Are you gratifying your flesh thinking there will be no consequences or are you sowing to the spirit? We see that this has implications not just for eternity but for here as well as we think about our sanctification. John Stott wrote this, some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. The sowing imagery is helpful, this farming imagery, because it reminds us that Christian life is daily work. It is just this daily, routine, mundane even, plowing. We see that every decision we make to gratify the flesh brings corruption. And every decision we choose to make in submission to the Spirit brings sanctification that leads to eternal life. You know, maybe say one caveat about this section. Unless your life sounds more like the works of the flesh and less like the fruit of the Spirit, this passage is not intended to make you nervous about your salvation. It's actually intended to encourage you. Paul is giving us a promise that if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life. It means that Our faith is not in vain. It means our daily walk with the Spirit is not in vain. It means that our labors are not in vain. Look at verse 9. Let us not get tired of doing good. This is rooted in what we just read. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we do not give up. We come now to our last point. Briefly, we'll consider serve this family. Because you will reap what you sow, that's a promise. It should push us to serve one another in Christ. 
Now, even as we think about verse 9, I think we should think about it first, primarily as eschatological, right? If we don't give up, we will, there will be a time for reaping. It is persevering faith that saves. But even this is not to be, not to be heard as a warning. It is a promise that if we don't give up believing in Jesus, we will be saved. And then, it's of course true in our lives here, Paul is writing to us to not grow weary, not to get tired of doing good works. And this is because there is a delay between sowing and reaping. It requires patience. There's no, uh, there's no spiritual microwave. There's just the daily plowing. You see, you don't reap love and joy and peace as soon as you sow. It takes time. Your neighbors and family don't typically come to Christ the first time they hear the gospel. It takes time. The people you're discipling, doing good towards, they might persist in sin or immaturity, even though you're speaking the truth in love to them. It takes time. But because it takes time, we are prone to grow weary, to grow tired, to grow discouraged. Friends, Paul is writing to promise us that we will reap if we do not give up. George Whitfield is regarded as one of the greatest preachers of all times. He was born in England in um, the early 18th century. He crossed the Atlantic some 13 times for preaching. I doubt most of us probably have not done that on a plane. <laughs> he did that on a ship. It's estimated he's preached, he preached over 18,000 sermons. I've probably preached like 30. <laughs> still be, still be uh, gracious to your pastor. Share all good things. He was a very poor health towards the end of his life. He died in his mid to late 50s, no doubt, because he ran himself into the ground. Shortly before dying, he knew that his time was coming to a close, so he was on his kind of last preaching tour. He was in New Hampshire, and he was about to preach. Um, and before he's about to preach, he's already up at the pulpit. Someone, someone says to him, Sir, you are more fit to go to bed than to preach. <laughs> what, a, what an encouragement. <laughs> Whitfield said, true, sir. Then he turned, he clasped his hands, he looked to heaven and prayed, Lord Jesus, I am weary in thy work, but not of thy work. If I have not yet finished my course, let me go and speak for thee one more time in the fields. Seal thy truth and come home and die. Weary of thy work, but not. Weary in thy work, but not of it. After preaching, he rode 30 miles to Newburyport, where he was scheduled to preach next at the First Presbyterian Church there. He, of course, was exhausted. He went up into the parsonage to sleep that evening. But the people, having found out that he had made it into their town, they came and they pressed in on the home. They wanted to hear him preach in the evening. He was tired, of course. It was the middle of the night. He lit a candle and he stood at the top of the stairs and preached until the candle went out. After that, he went to bed, and then he woke up in the presence of the Lord. He preached until his candle went out. He was tired from the work, but not of it. And it's because he knew that there were promises for him of greater rest later, and that God would bring forth fruit from his gospel ministry. He knew that he would reap what he would sow, and so he didn't grow tired. You see, the Christian has an unbelievable promise 
one not given to anyone else who is working for good. We will reap if we do not give up. We might not know what the fruit looks like. We might not know when the harvest comes. But we know who the Lord of the harvest is. We will bear fruit, be it in this life and in the next. This means that we need to take a long view in our sanctification here and also of our ministry. Charles Bridges, about a century later, wrote this in The Christian Ministry. Ministerial success must be viewed as extending beyond present appearances. The seed may lie under the clods till we lie there and then spring up. He's saying we need to think about more than what we can see as we do ministry. That the seeds you sow for the gospel might lie in the dirt until you're in the dirt and then spring forth. Again, we don't know, but we have this unshakable promise from God that if we do not give up, we will reap. Christian, I wonder, are you tired in the work of God? I would encourage you to root yourself in his promises that if you do not give up, you will reap harvest. It actually propels us towards more good work. Look at verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. You see, rather than growing weary or discouraged from doing good work or in the work, we go to work for the good of all kinds of people. Notice the Christian doesn't discriminate, right? Not based on our preferences, not against the poor or the rich, the young or the old. We don't only do good to people who look like us or who don't look like us. We don't only do good to people who vote like us. We work for the good of all kinds of people. The Christian knows that his greatest needs have been met in Christ Jesus. It ought to propel him or her towards good works. Brothers and sisters, we should be generous in our giving. We should be lavish in our love, sacrificial in our service. We do good to all, and yet, notice there is a priority. It is the family of faith. Looking at verse 10 again, as we have opportunity, meaning the time for sowing is now. The harvest will come later. We ought to view now as the time for sowing. Let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. This is the local church. It is the gathered body. It is the flock, the sheep that you know, the family that you take the table with, the group that you baptize with. It is the people that you are covenanted to, that you are responsible for and to. It is to the saints of your local church that we especially ought to be doing good too. Now, if you've lived in Memphis for some time, you've heard and understand that Memphis really is the biggest small town. It's true. It is the biggest small town. There are uh, benefits that come with that. You know, you'll run into someone you know every time you go to Target. That's also a con. You gotta always look good as you go out. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't know. Take it as you will. One of the cons I think that I've seen over time is that people happily spread themselves thin in this city. It is often to the household of faith, to the local church, that they do the least amount of good to. Paul is telling us that we should be the kind of people who do good to all, but especially there is a priority to the household of faith, to our family, to our sheep, the people we eat with. 
You see, this is because it is when we work together for the good of one another. It's when we bear each other's burdens. It's when we use the means of grace together. It's when we do all this sowing together that we reap a bountiful harvest together. In the way that the Lord has designed it, we reap fruit together as we work together in a way that we wouldn't individually. We, the people of God, gathered as the household of God, have promise that our friend group doesn't have, that a nonprofit even doesn't have, that when we work for each other's good, we will reap a harvest, sanctification, and now eternal life later. You see, it's not just the pastor's job to help the members get to heaven. This is our church covenant. As we sang at the start of our service, may our company be the saints you've called. May we all stand firm in one spirit. May the fruits of faith mark the path we trod. Through the life of Christ to the glory of God, may our hearts be so consumed by you that we never cease to praise. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Father, we once again thank you and praise you for your loving kindness to us. Seeing as your salvation is a gift to us. We thank you that you are so powerful that you bring the dead to life and that you produce increasing life in them, in us. We pray that we indeed would be a congregation that helps one another bear good fruit. We pray that we would be willing even to be introspective, that we would consider the type of fruit that we are bearing now, the type of seeds that we are planting, that we would, there would be healthy introspection as we consider our eternal state. But we pray that our hope, our trust would not be in our good deeds, but it would be in Jesus Christ. We pray that it would be to his return that we look. We pray this in his name. Amen.